0: This podcast is supported by VPLA, the Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. Welcome to the Planning Exchange, where we interview built environment professionals who are doing interesting work beyond the ordinary. I'm Jess Noonan and I'm joined by my colleague Peter Jewell. Conversion of commercial buildings to residential, a topic that's come up again and again, particularly in a post-COVID world where expectations for office space are entirely different to what they were before. Is it realistic? Can it be done? Is it more efficient and just easier to demolish and rebuild? What are the sustainability benefits? These are the questions we'll be discussing today with Jess Lee from from Fender Kestelides. Jess is a highly experienced architect and and has been with Fender Kestelides for nearly 20 years. Welcome to the show, Jess.
1: Thanks for having me, Jess and Peter.
0: Now, this isn't going to be confusing at all for you, Pete, having two Jesses on the show. This is a first, I think.
2: I'm a simple fellow. So I'll, I'll, if, I, if I go astray, just, just uh, shout at me.
1: We'll, um, we'll both shout Je- at you, don't worry.
0: <laughs>
2: Je- Jess, what, what led you to your current role?
1: Um, so I'm currently based in Brisbane, as Jess Noonan has <laughs> just shared. Previously, I have been with Benekat Salidis for nearly 20 years. I started in RMIT uh, in the early 2000s. I'm a student of architecture. And I recall back in the day, I had a beautiful welcome gift from my auntie who lived back in Melbourne then. I was an international student. I came from Malaysia. She got me a book on Melbourne architecture that was... uh, done by Philip Goat. I used the book like a tourist just to learn about my new city, my environment, and I discovered that most of my favorite buildings in Melbourne city was designed by FK. So the moment I graduated, I went knocking on their door and landed a job with the practice and I haven't had to look elsewhere since. So I often get a lot of surprise looks when I tell people how long I've been with FK. I think it's thanks to my Asian genes. I do look pretty young. And now when I'm looking back, I've had the privilege and a lot of fun working on some of the amazing projects, you know, that um, the practice has delivered to date. I started defecting in Eureka Tower. That's uh, one of our, now it's the second tallest tower in Melbourne. I worked on the Mona pavilions and uh, the museum in Tasmania. New Acton in Canberra, and more recently, I guess the topic that we're featuring today is uh, an adaptive reuse project in uh, the Elba in South Melbourne. So I've, over the years, I've enjoyed working on multiple projects with different typologies, whether it's mixed use, multi-residential, commercial, and certainly had a more focused lens on the seniors living housing typology of late. So I've recently relocated from our Melbourne practice to Brisbane to take on a studio lead role here. Uh, Up across the northern shores of Australia.
0: Are you enjoying Brisbane more than Melbourne?
1: Oh, I. (laughs) think it's too soon to call it Jess I mean Melbourne's great it's what top 10 livable most city in the world and I've enjoyed many years where it was top you know like top five I think coming to Brisbane it kind of reconnects with a bit of my roots a little bit I do get a bit nostalgic with the subtropical weather in Brisbane I think growing up in you know Southeast Asia it just brings back that you know young memories I've had growing up been the hot and humid Um, it's been actually really lovely in terms of the weather here they don't call it the sunshine posts I guess the sunshine state for nothing I do feel it's pretty easy to stay you know bright and cheerful here sometimes I've actually stopped complaining about the weather for I think the last six months so it's been great
0: yeah that must be a big change coming from Melbourne I mean we've got 30 I think it's 35 degrees here today so I feel like we're all probably a hot mess compared to what we normally normally are in the cold. So it's been a been a funny day. Um, now, Jess, we're going to be talking today about the evolving age care and retirement space, um, particularly in terms of how the design of these spaces is changing, particularly with the entrance of uh, that next baby boomer generation. But I wanted to start off by talking about the term positive age identity. So experts in the aging cognition and wellbeing space say that this happy state of mind is increasingly evident within the baby boomer generation. Found to improve happiness, health and longevity, positive age identity exists in increasing numbers in this cohort who say they don't feel their numerical age and have no intention of conforming to traditional aged care norms. This cohort is, however, very realistic and acknowledge that they may require care or medical assistance in future years, but are determined to continue to live independently today. They are therefore exercising their considerable spending power to downsize from the suburban family home to urban, aesthetically designed, vertical, easy living developments like the Elba, um, where day-to-day assistance will be on hand when needed. So I wanted to talk about, um, first of all, the, that term positive age identity and how this is changing how we plan for aged care and, and what are the opportunities, I guess, that this presents for the built form industry.
1: That's a really good question, Jess. I mean, um, just coming back to expectations of, you know, a generation that has really, you know, set the market expectations for a lot of, a lot of our commercial goods, the housing, you know, industry really. I thought it might be worth mentioning just, you know, coming back to 2018, where in Australia, we had a Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety. So this was, was sparked by you know, neglect, elderly abuse, there was a lack of transparency in like, the Aged Care system. Roll forward to 2021, I think the final report concluded that it was acknowledged that the built environment plays a vital role in creating a supportive, familiar and therapeutic environment um, that if it's done poorly, can be an, a barrier to independent function. So we have, you know, a generation that has observed, I guess, their parents' generation going through that environment in aging and, you know, putting their foot down, saying no way in, you know, am I anyone settling for what's out there as uh, a status quo today? So over the past few years, you know, we've been challenged to explore more residential type settings, less institutional style built forms, I think when we think about the inception of you know, the aged care building typology, it comes from a hospice, a hospital type of uh, um, design uh, approach. And today, I think the emphasis is certainly the focus on the creation of homes, as opposed to the word facility. I think one's, one great thing that you know, our clients uh, that we work with closely at Australian Unity and creating the Elba, she used to emphasize to our team to just call it RAC, which is residential aged care or you know residential aged care or aged care residences and drop the word facility from the word completely because nobody wants to live in a facility so it's really you know interesting just like the word and the emphasis on home Um, it is a space where we're designing for you know a space for people to live first and foremost but there's also a place for people to work which is the carers and like the staff members who provide the care and the support service in these um, in these aged care environments so I think it's good to sort of put the emphasis back on what is familiar if we talk about a generation who you know are used to not conforming and creating you know their idea of what positive age identity is it shouldn't be different from the homes you and I live in at today it's about providing that choice whether you want to live in an apartment an acreage home um, you know um, in an urban in regional I think that choice should always be there for people but it's about uh, building uh, and providing like these spaces that enables that choice to the community I hope that answers your question
0: so it's, it's a real rebrand, I think, is sort of what you're saying. And, you know, even what you said before about rebranding it to be residential aged care, I think even that term in itself still has some negative connotations probably with um, that baby boomer generation. So it's almost just about calling them apartments for, mm. you know, retirement apartments. Oh, that That's actually probably just as bad, but <laughs> there's, there's definitely a rebrand required. I agree.
1: Yep.
2: Uh, I, I suppose, Jess, you know, the the baby boomers are a very big cohort and they've, they're relatively very wealthy. They're probably the wealthiest cohort that's gone through. So this is, a, and also with our new technologies and things, this is a time for experimentation and, and not wanting to diss what happened in the past because it's also an affordability issue as well, um, Jess, in terms of. You know what you're describing might be obtainable for some but but for others but i just wanted to go back to that question of you know it's now is a good time for experimentation given the circumstances
1: that's right so we are setting a new benchmark in a way i think about like the project in the but it's pretty unique in terms of an adaptive reuse of an office tower into vertical aged care in an inner city suburb in Melbourne. I would challenge anyone to come with a similar typology to the space and, you know, and share, I guess, uh, their projects. This is the time for experimenting. I mean, you know, it probably wasn't long, too long ago where apartments was a thing of, you know, Uh, that's foreign in the context of, you know, the quarter acre block uh, and vertical living within, you know, our cities. Um, Today, it's, you know, obviously when you look at the skyline of Melbourne and certainly I'm looking out now at the skyline of Brisbane, looking at apartment settings within the CBD, but slowly it's edging out into our inner cities as well. And multi, multi, you know, um, vertical living is becoming becoming more accepted it's becoming common that people talk about convenience and location um, and easy maintenance of this housing typology so is it is it different as we age in terms of you know offering um, the types of houses or homes that are designed to meet my needs and as I'm aging I might not need as much space. I don't have the time to clean my gutters, or I probably shouldn't climb any more ladders to clean my gutters, um, or you know sweep the lawn. But I can do, you know, pottering around the garden just to keep myself healthy. So it's about you know finding the right fit for all of us at a different at different stages of our life. So now is the time to experiment and test, um, while while there is, I guess, the economic. Um, availability of our boomers, setting the new benchmark for that next you know, wave of what could that housing typology look like. Thanks for the support from Ratio Consultants, an independent voice and trusted partner in planning, urban design, transport and waste management. Ratio supports change through projects that shape cities, neighbourhoods and places for people. See ratio.com.au for details.
0: Now, Jess, we've we've touched briefly on what the Alba is. Can you just go into a little bit more detail? What is the Alba? Who was it for? Um, and I guess some of the design parameters that you're working with.
1: Absolutely. So the Alba is the second stage of a two-part development. So what started as the Albert reti- Redevelopment Retirement Community. The inception of the project started back in 2015. So that's like more like eight years ago. So stage one, which is the first stage, was a building next door that was completed back in 2019. It's an 18-story independent living apartment uh, building that offered about 79 units of um, ILUs, or we call it independent living units. So the Yelba is stage two, and it completes the whole uh, co-location um Project typology of allowing you know that whole aging in place, and having um, a housing community that meets the needs uh, of the residents within and also the local community. So it the Alba itself was built um, within the original office building owned by our clients, Australian Unity. So Australian Unity they they are a mutual company founded back in like wow 180 years ago I think and it's proud to promote itself as a member owned well being company. So the building, which is the Elba, was an office tower that was built in the 70s. It has the hallmarks of a modern, typical office tower architecture. It's like 15 stories tall. It has white concrete, you know, sort of blades in the front in a cellular facade. It's repeated in beautiful two-third proportions, only the architects would really, you know, love these sort of things. So three meters tall, by one meter wide sort of window frames, repeated across four elevations. So there's a few uh, few things to, I guess, the ELBA that's really unique in a sense that our client actually occupied the building. Um, and when they moved to their new offices back in the CBD, they knew that it's stage two of a whole co-located precinct for seniors. And adapting the ELBA into an aged care building as part of, you know, completing the picture between stage one and stage two where we had over 55s next door, which is your independent living. And then you have, you know, your higher care cohort um, where, you know, assisted living apartments and residential aged care suites were introduced um, with the full, you know, suite of um, services that completes the development.
2: Jess, this is a fairly novel Mm. project. Um, Did you look to other refurbs, for example, you know, for inspiration. And and I'll just get back, the the question was, uh, we're often told by developers that it's not efficient to retain old buildings and retrofit them. So the question is, how difficult is it? I suppose it depends on the building and all sorts of things, but did you look to other uh, examples to give you guidance?
1: Yeah, this is a really great question. It's interesting, Peter, because, I mean, eight years down the track, I I don't think any of us anticipated the interest or the timing of the completion of the ELBA to get to just sort of coincide with, you know, COVID, you know, I guess, you know, the emptying of offices, um, you know, buildings built from the 50s are all ripe for upgrades. I mean, we were on like a whole, you know, train sort of, you know, trajectory in upgrading and building, you know, premium offices, grade A offices, our CBD. And then 2020 happened and, you know, everything went a bit on a, a stop. And uh, we we think about, you know, back in 2015, I don't think anyone actually stopped or quest. definitely a lot of questions in terms of whether to retain or to demolish like the Elba to create a new build, but it wasn't a key driver back then in terms of keeping the retrofit for um, the purposes of um, carbon emissions and things that I'm gonna, you know, we can go into detail later down um, this conversation. We stopped to ask ourselves like, why was the existing building kept? I mean, I think um, we, you know, recall back to the early days of conversations with the client one of the key driver was actually um, stage one, which was the grace next door. Um, we had um, the clients who is looking to sell the apartments next door, very cognizant, I suppose, of the customers that's moving into stage one. And if they were going to demolish and rebuild the building next door, they knew they were going to have probably a bunch of irate customers at their hands in terms of having sold and completed a, you know, a premium apartments, luxury, high-end, you know, uh, retirement living next door, and you're going to have a very disruptive construction site, you know, right next to it. So the design was always to minimize uh, the disruption to, you know, stage one customers. But it was also, I think Jess would appreciate this, and both of you actually would appreciate the planning process involved how straightforward it was just to not uh, redesign or rebuild um, the Elba. The office building looks exactly, well, close enough to what it was previously. So we had a very smooth planning process um, to with Council. Basically, apart from the planning height restrictions that applied to the site, which we were not seeking to change, it just meant that we couldn't add more yield to the development if we were to demolish and rebuild. So it was probably a safer bet to retain the structure and kept uh, the existing built form in the Elba, which also complemented um, stage one next door, which is the grace. We knew we were going to build a new building next door. Uh, The Elba set the precedence around the context so we could build to our boundaries, basically. We matched the height for the Elba. So we had everything that uh, enabled us to sort of optimize the planning or the scheme, which was going to go in stage one the apartment next the apartments next door and then the elbow you know stayed in its original shape that allowed our you know councillors to uh, approve the development
2: and, and Jess, you know just just if you can recall right at the start of the project do you as an architect do you look around for examples and this is probably your first big retrofit um i'm not sure but do you look around for examples, you know, at that very early program stage, you know, that very first sort of the initial design and you're looking at the examples surely?
1: Yeah, I guess with with our practice, it wasn't something new or unheard of in a way, because I I just think back to, I mean, this is before my time and I look at the practice and, you know, our founding partners, um, you know, have had their hand in retrofitting a lot of buildings in the Melbourne CBD. So this was back in post code 3000, where um, council introduced a scheme to inject like more residents to move into the city and uh, FK as a practice has has existed about 25 over years and adapt the old post office on Russell Street and added, you know, an apartment block over. I don't know if you're familiar with the building, which is Hero Apartments. Certainly
2: not. Yep, it's a great great development.
1: Yeah, and I guess we're not daunted. Um, I don't think anyone was daunted by the fact that this was, you know, not the first of its kind. I guess in a way, within the practice, we felt sure that it's been done before, we can certainly do it again, uh, was probably the attitude that we moved um, forward into um, to enable... Um, our our process forward. So we had our existing precedents in um, in in creating in creating um, our our project by looking at existing like buildings from the 90s. We had a couple of apartment projects in um, in in the city that we've done before. So um, we even adapted like the old silo apartments into apartments in Richmond. <laughs> And I think about um, about retrofitting, you know, all silos into apartments as well uh, back then. Certainly before my time, Peter, but I guess from precedent's point of view, we weren't daunted and now uh, we looked at the building and we're like, all right, what can we fit in this?
2: I like that attitude, Jess.
0: <laughs> and just so during this time of the housing crisis that um, the media is certainly labelling this current time as um what are the possibilities that this adaptive reuse offers in terms of efficiently increasing the housing supply that we have in good locations
1: oh jess isn't this the wicked problem of our time Um, absolutely
0: (laughs) (laughs) can you solve Uh, it
1: (laughs) so I think if I were to venture my opinion, by no means, adaptive reuse is a silver bullet. I know my peers in, you know, I think about um, Hassel sharing, you know, their their research paper into the Melbourne CBD and uh, viable office uh, buildings that could be adapted in, you know, into residential. I think it was only like 6% or something. So, you know, everyone got very excited about the the possibilities certainly it is um, it is not a silver bullet it's probably what I want to say but what I do venture it offers an avenue to an alternative pool of contractors in a pretty tight construction market so there is because it's more fit-out based in certain areas you could look at you know exploring a different pool of contractors in um, in today's market, do we have to always go to the big tier builders? Could we talk to maybe other tiers in terms of you know how extensive is the retrofit will probably you know sort of expand uh, the number of contractors you could engage with, but there are you know great examples that we've we've we have in Australia about uh, reusing old office buildings. I mean, I think about like many years ago before the housing crisis has hit us, like in QV apartments in the Melbourne CBD, we had a leftover car park space between the podium and an apartment building. And um, I think it was a level where it was a leftover car park space that was retrofitted by brief architecture, I believe, into beautiful apartments um, in Canberra. The old, the old government building I think for social services that was bought over by a company called LDK and they adapted the entire precinct into retirement living communities. So there's lots of senior livings of there of uh, the old government buildings that was you know put into that was left sold, not demolished so the skeletal you know sort of built forms were there. but now you know what was really old school government type of blocks? In, uh, in Canberra, has been, you know, changed into a really lovely retirement living community. So it certainly, I guess, you know, diversifies the pipeline while, you know, we're exploring a crisis at this stage. It certainly, you know, opens another door into releasing more housing options into the community.
2: Well, as you say, yes, it's not a silver bullet. And, um, for, but for a variety of reasons, you know, retrofitting or building conversions fail feasibility <clears throat> due to the expenses associated with services, fire safety, environmental standards, building, and so it, it's very difficult sometimes. And also, the the position of the the lift core, for example, mm-hmm. you know, makes it very difficult to convert a lot of office buildings to residential. So. I, I know it's a very, <clears throat> i use the word trendy thing, Jess, to talk about this, but uh, that's 6% that uh, it, it, there is a very relatively limited pool. As you say, this is not a silver bullet to the housing crisis, which has got uh, many solutions. But can you talk about all those different, uh, you know, applying contemporary standards to an old building?
1: Mm, yes. Um, so we... <laughs> I guess we, you know, we started as a very optimistic and um, I'd say brave. Sometimes, you know, when you're just looking at the possibilities, you, you know, you kind of weed through like the, the issues as you go along. I think, in a in a sense, our project team, you know, discovered and we're certainly happy to share our lessons learned with like industry because it's, it, 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 you know, we've done it. We like to share our findings with everyone. I think with uh, retrofitting and you know uh, services associated. If we had demolished and rebuilt, you're going to need new services anyway. So the upgrading of services or changing of services, because we are changing a building classification from what was an office, which is class five in our construction code uh, in Australia, to a class 9C, which is residential aged care. It really meant that, you know, we were gutting the entire building because you're talking about a built form that was built in the 70s, 50 years ago all the construction code and standards would have, you know, evolved to the new code that we have today. So that was the biggest probably challenge that the project team faced early in the stages. We spoke to our engineers, our building certifier, building surveyor, to talk about what are the things that we need to think about, you know, at the start, and then sort of work our way through it. Um, It isn't different in the sense that you know, we start a new building. We go through with our building survey, uh, certifiers. Here's all the issues. Tell me what we need to know and what we need to prepare for you. Um, I guess if I could do this again, in terms of you know, what would we have done differently, probably more engagement just with our. Structure was always an early engagement. Fire was always an early engagement. We knew that those were critical items that we had to upgrade to ensure that our building would be fit for purpose, safe for another 50 years. I think it was probably the coordination between structure and services that we, you know, when you have an existing building and the heights are already established, I think it was 3.3 metres floor to floor. So a bit smaller than our, you know, today's standards of a commercial building, but certainly okay for residential this was completely fine for residential development where we would typically establish our floor-to-floor at you know 3.2 meters you know floor-to-floor heights we um we we worked through a lot of uh, crossovers because we had new steel beams to sort of support the new cutouts in our building and uh, if we could do it all over again I think we probably would have had closer sort of workshops between all three parties the architect. The services engineer and our structural engineer, just to avoid like the hairier sort of um, on on site construction, where you know everyone's sort of, how do I get my ceiling heights to work when I have all these things in my way? Not that. It's, Je- Jess, you've been
2: incredibly <laughs> honest. This is this is this is like uh, a forensic examination of what did <laughs> I? How do we go wrong on this? Oh, or the, what scars, in, yeah. the scars. I think are threw in.
1: Yeah, I think yeah. The scars but, are still Jess, there. We don't
2: normally get. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and Luna, we don't, don't normally get this sort of, uh, this uh, mea, mea culpa. But anyway, sorry, Jess, I interrupted you.
1: <laughs> no, and I guess it also, you know, in terms of like allowances for latent conditions, anyone who is working in a retrofit will have contingencies. And uh, I guess, you know, the sort of things that why feasibilities could fail is because there probably is an overestimation of these latent conditions. I think more and more that if we can share these case studies, people would feel less inclined to inflate the contingencies in terms of what these latent these conditions are. They are there. We now know of them. Of course, there will be like things like, what's about as- asbestos? Because that was a building material that used to be done back in the day. Um, we would have, um, you know, concrete reinforcement steel that wasn't documented in the original structural drawings and here we have our team demolishing on site and you know they hit literally they hit steel so it slows down our construction program because we have
2: a bit of a bit of archaeological dig as well you're talking about you're you're peeling off and (laughs) discovering and sometimes with horror
1: Mm, yes certainly you know you when you look at the poor jackhammer person on site that's you know going through the concrete it's hard enough to concrete but if you're going to throw steel in there as well that wasn't anticipated it does slow down the process and I think um, in in you know retrospective you know we all got together as a project team at the end of it with the builders with the client with our engineers and we talked through you know what did we what would we have done differently and what would we do better? And I think um, in part of um, our debrief process or end of project process, it was good to sort of exchange like, well, these are some of the things that, you know, we didn't anticipate, but we now will in the future. So knowing this helps with, you know, allowances or doing inspections just to check are there these sort of discoveries before we, you know, before we strip the building and get in there, basically.
0: So Jess, just thinking now, based on what you said, is it significantly more efficient from a I'm just thinking from a from a time perspective but also from a cost perspective mm-hmm. to retrofit or is it better to do a new build or is it much the same?
1: that's um so what's really great is that our clients actually engage our Qs at the end of the project to do a cost analysis at the end yes, of day you, to can't day. Just,
2: you, you can't just you can't just explain quantity surveyor and oh, yes. what they do,
1: please. Uh, We've got a quantity. very broad listener base. That's true. Our QS and our quantity surveyors. Stop being so
2: nerdy. That's
1: anyway, sorry. <laughs> I'm still discovering what the quantity surveyors do. They do, you know, make make our life a little bit. Well, I used to say they shatter our dreams sometimes, but they're great for the clients. They're very important to the clients. But to the architects, you know, sometimes we do we do lament about, you know, how they, they shatter our dreams. <laughs> Um, look, the cost of the refurbishment, just was, I think, in the end of the day, about 6300 per square meter in the retrofit. And had our clients decide to knock down and rebuild a building of a similar scale, it would have cost them $6,700 me- per square meter. We're talking about a $400 difference here. So it's not a significant cost saving if we stop to think about it. And, um, you know, it was a good analysis to do at the end of it. So there was a lot of unique conditions to the ELBA in terms of the client the asset. Um, it was their HQ or their, H- well, their headquarters for their company before they found a new place uh, to move to. And, 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 had, it, and had it
0: been their, their headquarters for, well, since the building was constructed?
1: Yes, it has. Oh, okay,
0: so so then I guess the other thing there is that they they've got the um the the ability to know more about the original structure, which probably helped as well. I'm guessing.
1: Well, it, it was actually a bit daunting at the start of the process when our clients knew the building better than the architecture team, because they were working within the building. And every time when we had our drawings, you know, up and we're like, no, 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 no that's not right. That's yes. you know, that's actually this way. So it was it was you know at first going like, oh my gosh, the clients actually <laughs> know you know the building better than we do. And uh, but in the end, we got we got there. We got there, and we you know we had enough meetings in their offices to appreciate, I guess, the internal environment. And it is so different. Today from what it was before, and I really do enjoy um, taking our clients back into their old building. And some, you know, some members have left the organization and come back, and they remember or recall their office, you know, where they were ten years ago, and just to walk in to see like what it is today. It's I think probably it's pretty mind blowing for them because they've seen you know an office building from the seventies, and now you have you know a really incredible you know vertical aged care building. Uh, from today so coming back to time though you know I was absolutely convinced that we would save a lot of time and I was telling you know our builder of course we save time and you know he set me straight at the end and go like Jess we didn't save that much time because access is a consideration when you don't have a crane And uh, when you're a builder and you design, you know, early stages of mobilizing the site, you know, there's a different method or approach to coming in from outside in and you're kind of, you know, peeling out the layers from inside and there's lots of things to pull out and without a crane or I guess a chute that's, you know, um, readily accessible, you kind of need to sort of manage like the peeling out and putting back in new things as they go. So part of, I I guess, the time. Yeah, mm. so the time is that they they installed two alley mics, I guess, in the front of the building um, and um, because we had the lifts. So the construction management side of things with uh, the contractors were a lot more, you know, by the date. So you can bring your – so in larger sites where it's new built, I guess our builders could store all their, their materials on site in the sheds in a, in a lay-down zone in this area because it's a tighter urban sort of uh, environment. They've had to create a, they've got a smaller laydown zone I guess in terms of accessing and getting in and out of the, build, the building site and uh, they have to time it as in you know when it's, when the materials arrive it's you know the fit out or the contractor is there to build it. You can't just have it stored somewhere and you know get it when you need it. So there's this whole I guess additional layer of administration. And you know project management that comes on. I guess not from the architect's point of view, but you know from the contractor's point of view. Uh,
2: dear listener, I, I, I don't know about you, but I, I feel like I've got a hard hat on and still cap boots walking around the site with Jess. And now, this has been an, an immersive these,
0: podcast. This is great. She, this,
2: <laughs> she's pointing out all these things to me, to us, I should say. Now, now, Jess, a, a, a vexed issue, and I, I think there's. There's some questions to be asked about the environmental benefits of conversions and how, how is it measured? I mean, it's, it seems um, that this is a, a fairly fluid di- uh, uh, dialogue about how you measure the environmental benefits of doing all this.
1: Yeah, so the environmental benefits of our wonderful QS, our quantity surveyors, also did a a carbon emission analysis, which, you know, we did that whole end of project as well. So our clients, how great are they? You know, they did the whole... End um, of project, you know, quantification. They they might not have started on the premise of this is going to be you know, they're a retrofit and we're going to save all this carbon, but it's like actually we've done this and it's like what how much carbon did we actually save and uh, and it was a staggering uh, quantum where the QS worked on um, the calculations of. Uh, with our structural engineers, so here's, you know, the amount of concrete, reinforcement steel and structural steel um, in this retrofit, and this is what it would have been if we design a whole new build, that means we demolish and, you know, design a whole new building, we avoided about 3,300 tons of, you know, carbon dioxide, you know, equivalent in retaining like just the existing, you know, concrete structure. So the slabs, our columns, our core, um, the whole facade is actually load-bearing as well. So if anyone just, you know, Googles like uh, the the... What does the building actually look like? It's a waffle frame, um, concrete sort of gridded cellular facade, and all of that to our surprise was load bearing. Not that we intended to change the facade, but it was good that it gave us an extra reason to keep the facade because that was what was holding up the building as well. So it it we avoided a huge amount of you know um, um, carbon you know emission. And it, what's another another value that I think I'll our clients added was the social value of actually this, this project. So beyond our environmental, I guess, um, just the ESD side of things, there's the ESG, which is, you know, part of the community. What was the social benefit of uh, this project? And I think they shared this in one of like the case studies um, uh, conference recently that, you know, featured the ELBA about the social value of of projects like the ELBA where it you know, enabled, you know, 155 like new um, aged care residences into the community. Um, It brought allied health services into the local neighbourhood, which is open to the local community. Um, It talked about the health benefits of having um, health services within the community that, you know, that specifically catered to to the seniors community. So I think they quantified something like 1.6 million, and I'm Taking, I'm taking this out of memory, guys. So in terms of the social benefit of this typology within its local neighborhood in the first year that is done. And so as the, as the years go by, how how is this project or this typology adding value to its neighborhood? Is the other question that I think is it's it's a great like, you know, sort of question to ask.
2: Yes, I'll just j- jump in. Um... Also this site and for our listeners not um, based in Melbourne, it has outstanding public transport links. It's opposite a park. It's very close to all services. So it just, it, um, Noonan, it talks about your um, accessibility question before about you know going up with retirement um, scenarios. It, it, it's leveraging off the great assets of that area. Just our guest.
1: <clears throat> yes, definitely. So we talk about bringing like um, a age appropriate housing into the neighborhoods that we are familiar with, and I think about South Melbourne, you know, inner city, wonderful, established suburb. South Melbourne markets is my favorite markets in Melbourne. Just around the corner, we have like the best sporting you know like MSAC which is uh, our sporting aquatic center that's across the road Um, the F1 is held annually and that's if you're hard of hearing hey you will definitely be able to hear the F1 and uh, its annual sort of um, excitement that it brings into the neighborhood and um, I've spoken to you know residents who have come to live in like um, the Elba and the Grace next door. And I, you know, I asked them, so where have you come from? And, you know, where, do you, uh, where did you move from in terms of, uh, you know, what, what brought them to this neighborhood? And their answers are really great and varied. Some of them is, you know, I'm coming to live closer to my daughter because, you know, she lives in South Melbourne. Uh, they came from, like, country Victoria, interestingly enough. Um, others is, you know, because it's their local neighborhood. It's where they grew up. Another resident, which you know, really warmed my heart, uh, was she lived in uh, a, an FK building on uh, Park Street, up uh, uh, sorry Broad Parade, up in. Uh, in uh, near the Melbourne University precinct. And it's an old Fender Ketzlis building. I think it was built in the 90s as well. And she said, oh, I found another FK building and I, you know, that's why I wanna move into this apartment here for my, you know, my forever home. So uh, I guess- Je-
2: Jess Nuna, that's that brand recognition uh, FK have got. People move across town to be in one of their um, new places. Oh, that's lovely,
0: Jess.
1: <laughs> yes. I think so. I, I think I don't know if I shared that with Carl yet, but I'm sure he'd be happy to hear that.
0: Very, very good brand recognition, as you say, though, Pete. That's that's excellent to hear. Jess, I also just wanted to ask about. Another particular case study in Melbourne um, that's been in the media a little bit recently um, where a student accommodation building that was constructed I think about five years ago is being demolished to make way for a new student accommodation building. It's been in the media quite a bit because the City of Melbourne um, the local council um, for the CBD here um, have come out and said, look, this is not good enough. We're not going to be accepting this anymore. Um, we want to see more retrofitting. We want to see... Um, better quality buildings being constructed that so, so that we can avoid this situation happening again. Do you think that the learnings from the ALBA could be applied to other asset classes such as student accommodation or is there any reason why it couldn't be?
1: No, I think housing is housing and I really like to think, you know, like um, at every stage of life, you know, we need a home, right, over our heads, whether I'm a student, um, family with kids, um you know, double income, no kids. You know, let's just pick the the whole cross. I'm actually in BTR at the moment. It's great fun too, by the way. We can talk about that as, that asset class. But coming to retrofits, I think that. Each case is unique, Jess and Peter. And uh, we think about, you know, you spoke earlier, Peter, about the core position. Not every office building is going to be appropriate for housing because we know that there is a maximum depth to a building before it gets too dark. We, you know, we need natural light and ventilation into all our housing. And uh, those are the kind of studies that, you know, different footprints, you know, will yield very quickly, whether or not we can, um, we have enough facade sort of access, like, you know, perimeter around our building to enable access to natural light and ventilation. So those are the preliminary studies that we did. At the start, we have at the Elba, it's, you know, 50 meters long by about 20 meters wide in terms of its frontage to the street. We had access to the grace it was always designed from the start of our development that we would have a light well that enabled, you know, access to natural light and ventilation for both sides of our building, whether it was stage one and stage two. So those were sort of key moves that, you know, you bring to the start of um, the process. Um, If I had an existing office building um, that's, you know, built in the 70s versus one that's built in the 80s, it is actually worth asking, you know, the buildability or construction typology that was uh, that was applied back in the 70s. Your, maybe your concrete structure might not be as, you know, as strong as you hope that some of your, your more uh, modern technology brings in, say, the 80s, for example. So it is a case-by-case case in a way. Um, to be fair, like the Elba was built in like the 70s, but there have been some other buildings that, um, you know, we've tested with structural engineers to find that we can't, you know, add um, more value to an existing building by, say, you know, going going higher. Um, Like, say, um, our office is a good example in in the Melbourne CBD where we've added 10 storeys over an existing car park, which was also 10 storeys. So it ended up being a 20-storey office building over an existing um, car park building. However, at the start of um, the design of that car park, the structural engineers had always designed or over-engineered The structural loading to accommodate, you know, additional stories above as part of a future stage for development. So some buildings have the capacity because it's been over-engineered, and I am just talking as a you know armchair engineer here, and I certainly you know defer to my you know more uh, learned you know structural engineers out there who I have high respect for. It's a question to them in terms of asking, can I add a couple of stories if if the I think. To, to come back to the blank canvas, you know, do we do we just start from a blank slate or do we, you know, think about keeping? I think the 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 study or I guess like the new approach is, it isn't a blank canvas. You should always explore. Is it is it viable to retain a structure? And there are sometimes reasons why it isn't viable because you know there are opportunities for you know the site to be unlocked to a. You know, a better or you know more appropriate sort of development. The core was just position and not the ideal spot because it wasn't purpose designed uh, to be a residential development, for instance. Um, but I think you know the blank canvas thing is probably not your first goal. Now we should be talking about: is it viable to retain? What can be done? And is it adding value um, to its environment around it and its context?
0: So you would you would certainly caution i guess any of these blank blanket rules around not being able to demolish and having to refurbish because you just don't know what the specific parameters are of a particular site and a building. Correct
1: there is more complexities and layering to it to assume that you can keep a building. And uh, we certainly discovered that as we walked through um, the ELBA. I think, you know, some of our earlier conversations was like, how was it appropriate for 500 workers? And, you know, it's not appropriate for half the community, right? So, you know, we 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 did structural strengthening, you know, we've upgraded our building services as we should have. But I guess in terms of, you know, Um, the structural strengthening that was adopted into the building, that we weren't adding any additional, you know, um, stories to it, was staggering at the start of the process. But, you know, over time, you know, as we, you know, discussed with our structural engineers more, why do we need all this? It was, you know, important to understand that, you know, when you are subtracting things, you do need to add things back in, and uh, we certainly did. You know, create a couple of new voids and openings into our building um, because we were tinkering, I guess, uh, with the existing structure. Uh, our engineers needed to make sure that you know the building was fit for another fifty years, and to, have to go. So I'm, I'm glad you know they they got that covered. <laughs>
2: excellent, excellent, uh, cheers. Uh, okay. We thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website.
0: This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at ww.1milegrid.com.au.
2: Question without notice, and many planning policies now talk about future-proofing buildings, which, which personally, I'm very nervous about because we don't know what the future is going to be like. But have you have you thoughts about this sort of concept of future-proofing um, buildings, um, knowing what you know about um, retrofitting?
1: Yeah, so this is a a dialogue that we've been having a lot internally in our offices as well. Some of my colleagues are leading like the charge on this. It's very exciting to see some of the research that my teammates are doing on adapting car parks, Peter. So we talk about, you know, the phasing out of cars because we're going to have driverless cars in the future, Peter. Like Uber's, you know, at hand, we all don't need a car. Uh, Just (laughs) 450
2: years time. I agree. (laughs)
1: <laughs> what
0: about the drones?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. What about the drones? We we can work from anywhere. We don't have to travel to, you know, our 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 places, but I do want to meet people and, you know, so I will meet you soon when i'm back in melbourne in person yes, don't believe the
2: hype it's it's just it's all <laughs> it's, it's all hype. sorry i interrupted you
1: i think um i think we do need to consider just the bones of it one of the reasons that we were successful in adapting the elba in you know from an office into a residential aged care was because it had good bones and when i say bones i suppose you know we had the right floor-to-floor heights to be able to achieve you know natural into the floor plate to enable you know uh, comfortable um, room dimensions and living rooms and uh, spaces that would be familiar to any of us living in apartments. So I say the bones were great so we could you know adapt it to live you know to, to, to provide um, housing uh, for another 50 years to go. So this is about getting like the, the bones right. So when we come to today's design and we talk about you know, Crunching our floor to floors, like what would we adapt this building? You know, if it ever be retrofitted, I think one of like just the simple things that we you know just talk about is it, like, well, don't make your car parks you know, just for car parks anymore. I mean, we used to be able to really drop our ceiling heights down. Um, do we need that many uh, cars in the future? It's just a question. Not to say that you know we're going driverless immediately. But having you know, slightly higher floor-to-floors at the start would give us a bit more flexibility in the future. And um, I think that's about working a structural design um, with our structural engineers to enable you know, that flexibility of moving internal walls left and right in the future should we need to adapt our buildings.
2: It, comes to, it all comes at a cost though, Jess. You know, like build, building in what might be all comes with a cost. And we should acknowledge that, don't you think?
1: We should, yes. And uh, when you're talking about a 200 mil floor to floor and um, the stage opportunities of um, do we need um, this you know, um, retrospective fit, is there, is there a way to stage, you know, I guess, that tra- handover of, um, of um, commercial value to a building in stages as well. So, I mean, it is it is definitely, an, you know, something to, to that's another wicked problem that I'm just going to put out there. And now uh, we talk about, you know, future-proofing. I guess, you know, we do have, you know, people who retain their assets for longer term. And I guess that's the one that we can focus on in terms of like if you're an asset owner of an entire building, whether it's offices, Age care facilities. Oh, I, I said the F word. I should not have said the F word. Please omit that. H H care, just buildings. Um,
2: yes, she's just, <laughs> just, saying the t- just saying the words. She doesn't believe it. You know, sorry, sorry, Jess. I shouldn't say that.
1: I do. I do know it's it's good training. It's really good to you know keep practicing until you get it right. I say, um, it's um, oh, I've lost my train of thought now about um, acknowledging costs. Absolutely. Yes, um, it's also acknowledging, you know, um, opportunities in the future. So do you want to close the door now uh, or later? I think uh, it's, it's the longevity of, uh, of assets that, you know, I think people who retain assets for a long time, you know, have to consider. It might not be for everyone, but certainly the ones who are holding like the longer term um, buildings ownership is the one that has the opportunities to look beyond the immediate turnaround,
0: Oh Jess, we've spoken a lot about your wonderful client Australian Unity. What makes a good client relationship?
1: <laughs> Ooh. Um, right. A good client relationship. Um, hmm. This was the last minute question I think Peter threw in, <laughs> which is great. Of course um, we need that. Yep. Now I guess mutual respect and you know a focus on a common goal. We all just want to build better. Communities together, and I think you know that whole listening um, and communicating both sides, and you know really trying to understand, you know the the levers and uh, the, the the buttons that we all have to push to get to a common goal is key. I think one of the wonderful things, I guess, uh, with our, our working relationship with uh, this particular client was certainly just you know acknowledging that oh, it's not easy. We're in this together will work through it, and I think you know it took a lot of courage, you know, to say let's go, and you know the the optimism or the positivity in you know being more than just a built form because you know the company is a well being company. They believe very much, and they're very proud of, as well of you know their company's philosophy in creating better communities and what um, the legacy I think that they leave behind. Um, you know, we're just as you know honored and privileged to be able to help deliver. You know something that is in line with uh, their organization goals and uh, and objectives in their purpose. So mutual respect, lots of listening, uh, both sides is uh, is what I say. You know offers you know good relationships.
2: Australian Unity, great organization, Jess. Now, all the questions up till now have been easy, Jess. Oh. So we now we now, we now turn to. Podcast extra or culture corner, but before I ask you something you've read, seen, watched, listened to that might be in- interesting for our listeners, I do want to ask you a question. Do you like Durans?
1: Durians? <laughs> Are you talking about the King of Fruits, Peter?
2: Yes, and, and can you tell our listeners a little bit about the Marvelous King of Fruits?
1: Oh, if you ever go to Malaysia, I think you could smell it the moment you walk into like the country, or those of you who have very sensitive smelling. It, I know, it's, very sensory, it's very divided. But I sort of equate that to cheese, in a sense that some people love blue cheese and think, you know, it's the world's, you know, best thing, and some people who just balk it, you know, just its potency. So in a sense, I guess the durian, which is, you know, Malaysia's, you know, widely divisive <laughs> and uh, also a big export of the country actually. There's a huge market for durians in the world. Um, you love it or you hate it? I'm, yeah. I'm, what, I'm a big fan. Do you
2: love it? Is yes, I, yes, I am a big fan.
1: I am a fan, but I grew up with it. I've never been turned off by its strong fragrance. And the remedy to that is to have charcoal. So always have oh. charcoal to absorb the smells from your car or your house. Once you're done, okay. ensuring the peace.
2: Well, that, that, that's now you've a- answered the tough question. Now, <laughs> something you've uh, for, our, for our listeners, something you can suggest
1: for reading, watching or, or, just... or, or
2: something you've seen, done, experienced, yeah. something that might be of interest to our, our listeners.
1: Oh, this is, okay, this is a bit of a nerd, but I recently ordered um, a book by Rob Adams, which you'll be familiar with, which is have called Urban... Rob Adams on
2: this program, <laughs> yes?
1: uh, Urban Choreography was a book that came to my radar recently. It might have been a podcast that I was listening to, actually. And having moved, you know, having lived in Melbourne for nearly two decades and moving to a different city, I've, you know, really enjoyed, I guess, like the transformation of um, the CBD over the last two decades, I think I graduated at the best possible time in my career, and really got to ride the wave of you know the Melbourne CBD growth and changes, uh, and it's uh, and it's like boom. I guess it's it's been really great, and you know sort of revisiting um, a city in a new city. You know, I, I got a little bit, like, I can maybe I am a little bit nostalgic for, you know, the city as well. And, you know, I ordered the book and I've been enjoying reading reading Rob Adams, you know, sort of take on, you know, uh, on the Melbourne laneways. So that, that was my reading. I think, you know, you probably think like, oh, shouldn't she have like some other reading that's a bit more <laughs> exciting to share?
2: Well, we'll, well, just I've got a secret just between us. I, I actually, when I was a young planner at the city of Melbourne, I worked with Rob Adams. <sighs> What
1: and, did you think
2: then? <laughs> I, I, I had to carry him. He was hopeless. I had to, you know, he, he had no <laughs> ideas. Now I had to carry him all the time. Just very overrated. <laughs> Sorry, Rob.
0: Hey. Uh, now,
2: Jess Noonan, um, something your podcast extra.
0: Um, you'll be glad to know, Pete. I haven't had much time recently to read any books. So um I've got a baby that's really not sleeping much at the moment. So I'm doing a lot of um, activities on my phone. You're more, Jess. <laughs> so I am currently teaching myself Italian. Um so I'm using Duolingo, which is a, a great app, which I can highly recommend. Um, and I'm I think on to day 70 now, so it's it's going pretty well. I I've certainly learned a lot of words, but I I definitely need some practice in uh, you know, physically going out and talking to people. So, if there's any um, any Italian we'll speakers some, out we'll there,
2: need some Italian speakers too. Yep. Um, well, well, Jess, um, Jess, our guest, Jess Lee. <laughs> ne- next year is our tenth anniversary of the podcast, so we're going to have a massive party, and we'll, uh, it's going to be an Italian Moonen, party. We'll, we'll have <laughs> well, let's right. have a theme of the parties. It's just, not just <laughs> one. We'll, we'll have an Italian party where only People can speak Italian can come. And we'll have a Duran party as well. Uh, well that, so, that
1: you might have an evacuation, actually, if you did that.
0: No,
2: we'll have lots of charcoal there. But, um, well, and Jess, that's great you're doing that. I mean, you do so many different things.
0: Yeah, it's just been a, it's been a nice thing to be able to do sort of, you know, really at any time of day or any time of the night, um, which is good. So, yeah, what about you, Pete? You've always got something interesting. Well,
2: thank you, Jess. You you flatter me, but um, (laughs) uh, um, Jess Lee, I'm addicted to tennis, and um, there's a a series on Netflix called Breakpoint, so I've enjoyed that. And um, and how did did you go in your final? Well, well, uh, Jess Lee, I'm I'm a bit of a hack on the court, but I'm I'm in a very good team, and um, we actually won our grand final. So, oh, um, fantastic! Well done. So it's it's I've, I've I've had a magnificent triumph sporting year. Sorry, all our listeners, but uh, I won the table tennis in this irregular competition <laughs> I'm in. I won the beards and the snooker at the club I'm in. And uh, to cap it all, all off, Jess Lee, uh, we won our tennis. So I'm, I'm never going to be so good.
0: No, you're uh, just I'm, bragging. I'm,
2: I'm, no, it's never going to happen again, Jess. Newman, <laughs> so I, I think I should celebrate. Anyway. Oh, you, um, quit while
1: you're ahead. <laughs> Well, uh,
2: before injury gets me, Jess. I mean, that's that, the trouble when you get that,
1: old. That is true.
2: <laughs> you, you've got tweaks and groans all the time. So, but um, Jess Lee, you've been a fantastic guest, and I think you've um, illustrated or shown us all the all the intricate issues involved in refits and also vertical re- retirement. So, I think it's been a, a, a Jess no, I've really enjoyed it. I've been a bit confused by all the Jesses, but um, (laughs) so thank you so much. And Jess, you must come down south and come to our massive, one of our massive 10-year parties next year.
0: Sounds like um, you need a few excuses to come to Melbourne, Jess. So um, pop that one in your calendar once we lock it in.
1: Thanks very much. I'll be hanging out for that invite.
2: The music's going to be great. All right. Thanks, Jess. (laughs) And thanks, Jess. All the best. And thank you listeners again for listening.
0: Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Jess. Thanks for listening. If you would like to hear more of our podcasts, hit the follow button on Spotify or the like button on SoundCloud or the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts. Please also visit our Instagram page, LinkedIn or website for behind the scenes footage of our podcasts and to get the latest on upcoming or recently released episodes. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please get in touch via our social media channels or by emailing planningexchange at gmail.com. A special shout out also to Jack Babbage, who does such an incredible job in producing this podcast.